0: Well hi everybody, Um, thank you for being here today. My name is Mark Graven from Kinexus and I would like to thank you for uh, taking time to join us for today's webinar which is titled, Go Slow to Go Fast, Using Practical Problem Solving to Spread Kaizen. So our guest today, John Miller, co-founded the lean consulting and training firm Gemba Research in 1998, which merged with Kaizen Institute in 2011. He served as CEO and board member of Kaizen Institute Consulting Group for four years. John has led dozens of lean transformation projects in a wide range of industries, and has helped thousands of people across 20 plus countries understand and apply Toyota system principles. He has co-authored the Shingo award-winning book, Creating a Kaizen Culture, which I also uh, recommend very much. He contributes to a variety of publications, including over a thousand articles on his blog, which is called Gemba Ray, which I also recommend. And today, John advises clients on their lean journeys and supports content development efforts at Gemba Academy. John, thanks for being here with us today. Thank you. It's my pleasure. So beyond my introduction, can you maybe just start off by sharing a little bit more about your background uh, with lean and the Toyota production system, Kaizen, and continuous improvement?
1: Sure, yeah. I think uh, it's a good career summary, so maybe just talk a little bit about what's unusual in my background. I was born and raised in Japan. I spent about – well, I lived there the first 18 years of my life, and then back and forth another probably a couple years' worth of of living in Japan, so just under half my life I've lived in Japan. That opportunity to be part of the culture, speak Japanese, read and write Japanese, that got me involved with working with Japanese consultants – engineers, managers in the 80s and 90s who were bringing uh, their manufacturing operations, business operations to North America as an interpreter and a translator. So that was how I got my start. I I was not uh, an engineer or a business major by training, but I got a good six, seven years of on the job, on the shop floor, week after week. Learning with uh, a group of different consultants, uh, primarily with the Shingijutsu company,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and then you know, as you mentioned, that inspired me to start a small consulting company to serve small local companies, small local clients that couldn't afford that level of service. And uh, fortunately, that was effective, and Lean has grown, and we've grown with it. So, yeah. yeah. Well,
0: can you you tell us then a little bit
1: about for my background and this.
0: Okay. Yeah. Can you tell us also a little bit about, uh, before we dive into the main topic here, tell us a little bit about Gemba Academy. They are uh, a formal partner uh, with Kinexus. Uh We, we, we love uh, the folks uh, and the education products from Gemba Academy. Can you tell us a little bit about the company and your role?
1: Sure, sure. Yeah, I was one of the uh, three co-founders with Gemba Academy back in 2009, and it was an opportunity we saw to take what was primarily a uh, face-to-face medium, uh, training was done primarily face-to-face. We thought that the online uh, world that was just coming on, that was a good opportunity to to scale and advance the, the dissemination and the spreading of, of knowledge that we had. And so we began working with that, and we've been building it up sort of steadily. I think we've got five, 600 videos and hundreds of hours of content like that. So we were trying to be, to be an online, uh, lean learning organization, but I think – Lately, we're realizing that more and more, whatever we can do to help remove the struggle from, from organizations trying to do continuous improvement, we want to do uh, primarily by using, uh, using technology. So there's consultants that do this. Uh, there's training companies that do this. But as much as we can, providing podcasts, providing videos, webinars, another great way to, to take the knowledge we have, experience we have, and to more quickly, more effectively help people put it into practice. I mean, that's ultimately the goal.
0: Mm -hmm. so you talk about you know quickly putting things into practice and and maybe that brings us to talk a little bit about the phrase that's in the title of the webinar it's it's an interesting phrase this idea this concept this philosophy of going slow to go fast before we dive into you know the 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 eight steps of this practical problem-solving process tell us about that mindset yeah
1: that's a good point so I didn't coin the phrase first of all it's been around the business world for a number of years and uh, I think in the context of lean and problem-solving, it means that if we spend enough time on the planning and the checking phases of the PDCA, PDSA improvement cycles, we can be more effective. And Too often, uh, I think, North American and European management, problem-solving is, is a bias for action. Let's just do it. A lot of Kaizen events emphasize the bias for action. Let's get things done. And I think that's a reaction to probably decades of, of planning without action, or planning with ineffective actions, so something that is faster is more attractive. Um, go slow to go fast doesn't mean simply slow it down, but really to, to plan better, to think it through, uh, you know, to look deeper into what the problem is, and I think the eight-step process addresses a lot of that, the, the, the TBP, the Toyota business practice, the practical problem solving, a lot of these approaches are, uh, are addressing that, and I think that's one of the things that excites me a lot is I, I see a lot of the reason that organizations struggle with uh, success and having long-term success and continuous improvement is that they are, and a lot of people will say we need to go faster, and I don't disagree, but also you need to go slower. So you, you sort of need a little bit of both at the right place at the right time.
0: Yeah, it's fine. You know, I've seen whether it's organizations, you know, like ramping up a new uh, factory, a new line. Doing an A3, uh, there, there's this you know, kind of interesting situation where people who spend more time kind of agonizing over, let's say, the left-hand side of an A3 or these early steps of a practical problem-solving process, for a while they're going slower, but then mm-hmm. there's a point where things sort of you know take off and maybe the execution phase goes more quickly. If they've better understood their problem, maybe they're less likely to dive into countermeasures that don't work, which might force them to go back and try again. Um, mm-hmm. that's what you've seen a lot of.
1: Yeah. And I think that there's a lot of, a lot of sort of folk phrases or, or I'd say expressions such as you measure twice and cut once. If you're a carpenter, you want to measure the piece of wood twice to make sure you got it right before you cut it because if you cut it, you cut it the wrong size. Unless you cut it long, you know, it's pretty irreversible. You got to scrap that wood or use it for something else. And then you know, sharpen the spend. If you what was it Abraham Lincoln or somebody that if I had I don't know what it was ten hours to to cut a tree, I would spend eight hours sharpening the, the axe and two hours chopping. Right, you mm-hmm. are not going to ever get there with a with a dull blade. Right. Or you don't hear a lot of people saying, uh, you know, haste makes waste. That's another one. So I think that's is these ideas that I think we need to bring back into. Problem solving, and for me, problem solving and practical problem solving, that's sort of shorthand for a variety of human endeavors that include strategy, innovation, um, and not just solving problems, but uh, coming up with better ways of doing things, continuous improvement. So I think slowing it down or being more deliberate, that's, you know, I think sharpening the saw, or sharpening the axe blade, let's say. Yeah. That's the key idea.
0: So how would you describe um, what you're generally calling the practical problem solving process at a real, at a high level? What's, what's the intent? What's the purpose? How would you frame that?
1: At, at a high level at a high level, I think it's, uh, it's, it's just three big things. One is make sure you're addressing the right problem or working on the right problem uh, Two, work on making sure you're addressing it through and understanding of the root causes. And number three is making sure you're taking appropriate measures against the root causes. And if you can connect those three and do those three well, then you can be very effective at whatever you do. And I think the failings, whenever I see people struggling in practical problem solving, A3 thinking, Kaizen, whatever, it's one of those three are, are missing or misdirected or efforts not enough. And, we can, and if you break that out further, you get into the eight steps of practical problem solving, and you break that out even further... And there's probably 25 to 30 discrete actions you have to take at each of these eight uh, eight stages. You can call them eight steps, but they're not really eight steps because within each of these eight, there's multiple actions and steps. But at a very high level, it's working on the right thing, right problem, you know, clear, concise, objective problem, getting to the root causes, and then taking action, appropriate action, appropriate, right-sized, simple, quick, testable. You know, measures that have consensus; those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. I think those are the three three highlights. Yeah. You know, what, what's your understanding
0: about the origins of this methodology and some of the terminology? I know you also use the phrase Toyota business practices. Can Can you talk about maybe some of the history? Is
1: that's um, maybe interesting or relevant? Sure. Yeah. Products? Yeah. Uh, so I think you can trace it all the way back to probably quite a long ways, but the Schuhart cycle, what they call the improvement cycle, which was basically the scientific method. When Dr. Deming learned that, he applied it mainly to product development at first when he was teaching it to the Japanese in the 1950s, and then they, they applied that to production, uh, repetitive processes, continuous uh, improvement activities, and then with the work of people like Ishikawa and other folks in Japan, they built it into the, T- the QC circle system, the TQC, TQM Programs. If you look into any of those, they don't call it A3, but the storyline of TQC TQM is just straight up A3 thinking. And uh, yeah, I think that's the, way, the reason it got became TVP or Toyota Business Practice. I think probably in the last 15 years or so. My guess is that uh, Toyota recognized that uh, TQM was still vital and important, but getting a little stale as a result of the 90s and uh, the economic uh, problems they had in Japan. Just getting people excited about that was a little tough. And then also, when you call it quality, people think, oh, that's factory stuff versus right. if it's an overall business method or business system of this problem-solving approach. You, know, you brand it into a business practice and roll it out again internationally and break it down a little bit more from PDCA into at least these eight high-level stages and then you know, the steps within it. But I think that's, that's kind of how it, it's gotten its current level of definition and, uh, let's say, resolution or clarity. Yeah.
0: Yeah, you know, I've only been to Japan twice, so I don't have the experience um, that, that, that you have there. But one thing that was really interesting to me, you know, both at manufacturing companies other than Toyota. Um, you know, Toyota has a Toyota production system. Other organizations we visited, um, manufacturing services, hospitals, they were all still pretty diligently practicing TQM and talking about TQM talking about quality, they were doing quality circles, which were these six-month-long team projects. They wanted everybody involved. And they were following very much a process like we're talking about today. They might have had 10 steps or 12 steps or slightly different words. But I was impressed how there was a real discipline around that problem-solving process. They hadn't gotten bored with TQM, like I think yeah. a lot of organizations and um, other places. But the other thing that was interesting – and I'd like to hear your reactions to all this is some of these organizations were just now starting to do, let's say, daily continuous improvement as you talk about creating a Kaizen culture, taking other lean tools or lean methods on top of a philosophy that was pretty strong. So I'm I'm curious what your observations have been or what your thoughts are about that. Yeah,
1: I think there's been a number of – if you're talking specifically about Japan, there's been a long – long-term appreciation and understanding of sort of the basics of management, which include things like TQM and 5S. These things are are almost not separate lean things, but just basic matter-of-fact things that you would do, just like you'd have certain processes and policies for hiring and and training and selling and so forth, engineering things. And I think what's, what's changed more recently is probably since the early 2000s, even the Japanese organizations and and businesses and cities and governments became much more aware of just how significantly different Toyota's way of doing things was. And Toyota's also reached out and and helped communities and and local companies in Japan try to adopt those ways in in, in terms of uh, designing the Nagoya Airport. That was the whole thing that some retired Toyota people did, and it's it's quite a smooth experience, and it came in under budget ahead of time. So I think there's that appreciation. Uh, But... In terms of the daily management point, I think that's that's insightful. I think what's, well, this, just, just guessing, what's at work there probably isn't that the small daily improvement activities weren't happening. I think they were happening through suggestion systems, uh, the QC circle activities as they would meet on a weekly or mo- you know biweekly, monthly basis. But what wasn't happening as much perhaps was the, the very visual management aspect, visualization. You'll see a lot of visuals in place in Japanese companies often but it isn't necessarily always what you would call abnormality management, where you see red and green, you see problem, not a problem. That's something that's also been more and more recognized that the Japanese, by the Japanese themselves, that they have to some degree a culture of brush it under the rug or, or hide the problem if it's embarrassing, like like we all do, all, all cultures do, but I think they're not immune to that. So that's, over the past decade or so, that's been more of a business focus of what they call, I guess what you'd translate as a visualization. They call it kashika, which is just to make it possible to see, you know, so that's, I think that's being put back into the daily uh, improvement more and more these days, but uh, the best companies are doing it as part of an overall system, either copied from, copied from, let's say, or or learned or or modeled onto it or somebody else. Mm
0: -hmm. Um, So if we talk about, you know, the, uh, a problem solving process like this, you, you sort of alluded to it a little bit, but you know, why is it important to have, if you want a framework or some common language or uh, a set of steps, um, you know, what, what, have you found that useful yeah. as opposed to saying, "Hey, everyone, go solve problems," and yeah, PDSA, figure it out. Um, you know, th- this gives us a little bit more structure, right?
1: Yeah, I think that's a good question. So I think it's only important to have a formal problem-solving methodology if um, if a couple things are true about what you want for the for yourself and for the organization. One is. Now, if you want to get to the place where you're unconsciously competent, or you you're you're good at it, you don't have to think about it, then you have to follow a structure and repeat and practice. I mean none of us become good at anything without practice. You have talent, but you don't you don't become the best, you don't become champions without practice. That's true of music, that's true of sports, it's true of being a salesperson, it doesn't matter what it is. And I think having a a formal structure it guides your practice. You, know, you need a coach, and you need an informal structure, and you need a, a way of practicing. So I think that that's one of the big parts of it. And there may be some people who are natural-born problem solvers, and they get into it from a vague problem to a clear problem to root cause to solution, but those people are really quite rare, and and you can't duplicate that. I think that's the second part, is if you want to duplicate uh, that type of unconsciously competent, or even consciously competent, just the competence then you need a way to teach people. And if you have a framework, I think that's the reason that Toyota broke with tradition and and detailed the Toyota business practice in a way they'd never done before because they recognize that they're a global company now and this idea of you know, just uh, come up alongside your master and, and listen and copy, and eventually over, after 10, 20 years, you'll pick it up. That was no longer good enough. If you've got factories in every continent and all these languages and cultures, we need to make it more explicit. So I think that's the other thing is you just need to. When if you're going to practice and get better, you need to have an explicit routine. And there's better ways to, just like in sports or piano, there's ways that if you practice the wrong way, you'll injure yourself. You'll develop bad habits, and I think that's the keys. It's not so much about having a formal problem-solving methodology as having a, having a, a, a right, a correct way to practice, or at least a way to practice that doesn't develop bad habits and injure you. Mm-hmm. I think that's the way I think about it.
0: Yeah, this... Um Kind of a question that comes to mind thinking about methodologies or frameworks. I, I was talking to you the other day uh, with a friend of mine who's at a big company that'll remain unnamed. But we're talking about the webinar and this approach, and you know, he's sort of talking about how within their organization they sometimes have these these battles about which framework, which terms, how many steps, um, and, and he was sort of lamenting that that's yeah. you know ca- counterproductive um, for the for the most part. Um, do you have advice for somebody who's maybe in a situation like that? Um, is how important is it for everyone to be on a common uh, framework versus different frameworks in an organization?
1: Yeah, I think the thinking has to be the same, and whether you march through it in three steps or twenty-four steps, I think that's a level of it's a, it's a different level of competence. I think that's what it comes down to. If you disagree that root cause analysis is necessary, that you know, I can I can I can find the root cause because I just know it. I've done this for X number of years. I'm an engineer with all kinds of experience, and I look at a, plan, I look at a process, I know what's wrong. Mm-hmm. That's great, but that takes decades and or maybe just some kind of brilliance, some kind of special DNA. Mm-hmm. So I think you have to have that, so that, how do you say it, sort of elemental level agreement, and I would, I would say we'll work on the right problem, make sure you've got the root causes in your, your sites, and make sure you, you're taking appropriate action. And if, if you can do that in three big leaps, great. If you can do that in five, six, seven, eight, great. I think it probably takes, you know, 20 to 25 specific actions mm-hmm. and, and to, to get to the whole thing. You know, to, to clarify a problem is not a straightforward process, and you have to ask yourself a number of questions and check a number of things. And you can call all of that step one, or you can say, okay, in the clarify problem stage, we need to make sure that it's customer-focused, that it doesn't contain a cause, it doesn't a solution, it's short, it's concise, you know, it uh, addresses a real gap, and those are four or five things, and you can call them steps of activities, but you know, whether or not you agree to all those, I think you have to have some high level of agreement as an organization rather than some part of the organization just jumping to solutions and saying just do it, just do it, uh, and another part of it saying, well, wait, slow, go slow to go fast. Anyway, you're, yeah. you're, that's, that's dysfunctional, but the number of steps doesn't matter. In the sequence, you know, the sequence, I think you've you got to have your problem clear got to have root causes. you got to have corrective action and then feed it back to the, the first step. I don't think you can flip those around. I think that's about as as uh, rigid as I would get. Yeah.
0: Well, so let's talk about some of the steps in this process here because I, I think it's one of these things sort of like A3 thinking or even PDSA. Uh, on the surface, it's deceptively simple. Like, oh, I've got eight steps. I've got a cookbook. That makes problem solving easy, but that's, that's I think, far from the case. What, what are some of the pitfalls that you see? around, you know, can kind of maybe the first two steps around uh, defining the problem, understanding the problem, breaking down the problem.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think this is where people struggle a lot. And I think it's human nature that when we see a problem, we're already thinking about the solution. Or maybe there, before there's even discussion of problems or problem solving, you, you have a situation and you start to work on how to solve that problem. So it's having to take a step back and say, What's the overall history or background or situation? What's the context? What kind of an an ocean is this problem swimming in? And is it part of a bigger group of problems? Is it just one big problem that needs to be broken down? So just getting that level of of thinking can be difficult because people are so eager to go to the next step and start promoting their solution. I think that's a big big part of it. Uh, And uh, I think in terms of the, uh, I mentioned before, if you, if you're clarifying the problem, what does that really mean? You, know, there, there should be, you should have a checklist that says it doesn't contain a cause in a problem statement. It doesn't contain a solution in a problem statement. And it defines a, a gap in terms of either your, your goals or the organization's goals or the customer's goals or ideally all three. So people don't do those things and have to be reminded. It just until it becomes uh, second nature, until you practice it a lot, mm-hmm. those are surprisingly hard to do for people, surprisingly yeah. hard to do. Yeah, I think that's the one thing. And then the breakdown part of it is just uh, taking a large problem and recognizing that there's probably several elements to it. Most most issues are, are complex, having multiple parts. And then asking yourself, how do I how do I sort the data? How do I segregate things either you know, by where, by who, who's involved? Let's say, you know. Where, when, why? Just the all the all the W H words except for for why. Basically, yeah. you don't want to go to cause. You want to just know. Yeah, the facts. One what, what of the things. Yeah, you want to classify. You want to. It's called stratification of data, but you want to classify or group the the phenomena so you can pick one of those and attack it rather than try to pick the whole problem at once, which mm-hmm. often you result in a you come up with a more expensive solution, which is harder to back out of, and often doesn't get you the whole solution. You know, I, I in the podcast I. Talk about the uh, the city of Seattle, the current mayor, has this uh, impractical uh, goal to end homelessness in Seattle. I think it was five, ten years ago he started out on this, and, uh, and we've grown homelessness in Seattle by tremendous numbers because rather than addressing root causes, some of them are being addressed, but rather than addressing root causes, we throw a lot of money on it, which... Mm-hmm which is services for people, which attracts more people from around the country, which, again, isn't a bad thing to provide services to people. But if your goal is to end the phenomena of homelessness in Seattle, you have to think through cause and effect. If you provide places for homeless people to congregate and you don't don't move them on, then you're going to have a lot more homeless people. And it's just this kind of thing where you just go straight to to step five and step six. And, uh, yeah, uh, it's it's expensive. And the, the, the side effect of that, I'm just hearing about this recently, is the police don't have any budget for overtime, partly because of the, the, the Chinese president came through some months ago and they had to escort, clear all the highways. But a lot of money is of this from the city and the states getting spent toward the homelessness issue. So property crime is going up because police people don't have uh, overtime money to go and uh, patrol and so forth. So that is trace back to having a problem that's either too big or not broken down or not mm-hmm. practical
0: or, yeah. or it seems like what, what you're describing maybe goes down to some of the steps here around uh, step 7 check process and results um, not yeah. just did our countermeasure or idea or solution or whatever term you use did it work but I think it's also important to check for side effects you know mm-hmm. because maybe it, it shows we didn't understand the larger system as well as we thought And so can you talk about, um, not necessarily in the context of that example, but in general, sort of, you know, the iterative nature of this. It looks like eight linear steps, which is, you know, I I think maybe not exactly the right Mm. way to look at it.
1: Um, Yeah, yeah, it's really more eight stages with activities that go on. And remember, this is all part of the PDCA cycle. It's part of the loop. But even within each of those, let's say, plan, do, check, act phases, even within the plan phase, it bounces around back and forth a bit. Between having a, uh, clarifying the problem, and breaking it down, you might understand your problem a little differently. Go back and restate the problem a little differently. And as you do your work cause analysis, you might say, "Well, we broke the problem down a little bit differently. Now that we've done the Go See, we've done some 5 Why, we've done some listening to people. We're going to break it down a different way, which then might change your your understanding of how you state the problem. So that can happen because you just learn more as you learn more as you as you go and do the investigation. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, it's 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 iterative. It kind of loops around, on the big PDCA cycle as well as within a few times, which can be, you know, we like things to just go from A to Z, one, two, three. We don't want to go back to two. We feel like that's regression. We want to progress from three to four. It's like a game. You know, you don't want to slide back on a board game. You don't want to slide back to go. You want to keep going toward the end. But really, it's, you know, that's not how science works. I mean, in science. You have you have setbacks. You go forward. You go back. You find that. Uh, I think if you remind yourself and maybe draw a triangle between understanding the, the problem correctly, understanding the root causes correctly, and taking appropriate actions, and you just have arrows going back and forth and start at the top and then just bounce around until you, till you solve the problem. I think mm-hmm. that's, that's the way to think about it visually maybe. Yeah.
0: Um, let's talk a little bit about the idea of committing to a target and, you know, um, when – the right time is to do that? Because that seems like one of those things that might also be very iterative. We might identify, you know, some sort of gap, you know, between uh, where we want the measure to be and where, you know, some sort of measure is today. Is the target just the complete closure of that gap? Is it to say, it's common to say, in rapid improvement events, we're going to drive um, aim for 50% reduction in defects or 50% reduction in some sort of problem? Can, can you talk about some of the thought process it goes into you know, what is the right target how do we know if it's the right target
1: yeah that's a very very good question very interesting one because this is something that I think gets um gets less attention than needed and I'm, I'm really intrigued about the wording the, the Japanese wording which is which translates roughly as set an achievement target or set a target that will be achieved mm-hmm. so it's really a commitment it's not saying, or should it be, well, the gap is 50%, so we've got to close the whole gap. Well, maybe, maybe not. Mm-hmm. So what you're doing is setting, kind of drawing a line at, at after between step three and step four and saying, clarify the problem, break it down, you know, do some go-see as part of the breakdown to see if you're understanding the problem correctly. Then once you got that feeling based on data, based on gut, based on looking around the room with your team members saying, yeah, we can commit to 10% because we've got a really good grasp on this. you know what it is. And that's what we're going to commit to. We're going to go deep into the root causes. That's going to be our initial turn of the PDCA. Rather than saying, eh, boss wants 20%. Do we commit? Do we sandbag? No, it's not so much that as saying, what can we really commit to? And with you know, with heart and guts, really really see this thing through. So I think it has to be and that word commitment uh, to a target, to, to a goal, and to closing part of the gap is really important. Mm-hmm. This is where leaders have to be a little more enlightened as well and not uh, – understand that this is a learning process, it's an iterative process, and yes, you want them to, to challenge themselves and not commit to 1%, but you want them to get a significant step forward. But uh, an enlightened leader would mm-hmm. would be involved in the in some of the, the go-see or the reviews of the go-sees and to say, well, you say you're committing to 3%, but what about this area, what about that area? When, if you look at that region, if you look at these products, couldn't you also expand your scope and maybe achieve a little bit more? Go back and look at that and come back to me. Because they, they may see that, no, that, that's doable, they're just they're just not uh, they're just not uh, don't have the courage or the experience. So I think that's mm-hmm. the the important uh, importance. Let's say of step three is to commit and then move on and do the do the root cause analysis for that specifically broken down problem for that mm-hmm. committed let's say classified scope of the of the problem. Yeah,
0: and and, and the, you bring you raise some interesting points where I think an approach like this is a difficult transition for organizations where yeah. the old mindset was you know, things like, you know, failure is not an option. You know, we meet commitments around here. And, and that drives, I think, often a lot of fear. Uh, where it makes people really super cautious. They're not going to make a commitment because, uh, you know, you, you sure can't miss a commitment as opposed to, let's say I've seen, you know, an organization I admire a lot, Care in Wisconsin. They have a goal, roughly a 50% improvement, uh, but it's not a do-it-or-else target where I've seen in their weekly report outs, a team that tackles a really interesting problem, makes um, a lot of progress and has 30 something percent improvement. They get the same recognition and applause uh, from their leaders and from, and from their colleagues. And I think, you know, I think, I think that sets a good tone yeah, we want to push ourselves, but not in a way that makes people super cautious. Right. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. I think that's a very good point. I think one of the reasons I, I like the, the wording practical problem solving is uh, practical implies practice, which implies repetition. Mm-hmm. Also implies you're a learner. You're not yet, well, I think even, even pros have to practice, but it requires that this is something on the way to performing at your highest level. And also the aspect that it has to be practical it has to be realistic. It's not idealistic. It's not the one solution. It's, it's, a, it's, it's real, it's serious, but it's practice and, and giving Giving that space, so there may it may be that you can't always do practical problem solving. You know, if you have uh, a building on fire, you put out the building, you take the people out, to rescue people, etc. You don't go, hmm, let's clarify that. No, you don't. You don't start with that. You contain the problem immediately. You don't you don't start breaking down the problem. So there's different there are different um, re- responses. Let's say. And there's times when you need to jump into action, not necessarily into long-term solutions, but jump into action. So there may be some uh, company that's going out of business that needs to radically do different things. There needs to be a combination of jump into action to stem the bleeding, triage, as well as long-term practical problem-solving, root cause-based things. But if you 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 know, if you bleed out by the time you get to root cause, mm-hmm. it's, it's mm-hmm. not good. So I think that's the... That's that's the difference. And I think traditional leaders have kind of the that former they jump into action too much of the time and mm-hmm. not enough of the yeah. not enough of the practical. Right. So it's just you have to find the right balance and most companies that aren't aren't going out of business fast, you know, shift it toward the practical and you'll do a lot better.
0: Right. Yeah, and back in the audio industry there's versions of this model where you use the word containment. They they have a mm-hmm. specific step that says, you know, contain the problem, protect the customer. Um, and if, um, you know, I think at the start of my career, all they did was containment. That's not good. Um, you can't have the other situation where, like you said, um, you know, kind of dive too much in the root cause analysis. I'm going to give a shout out uh, to a friend of mine, uh, Carrie, who's watching because I saw her tweet. Hi, Carrie. And she did a car- we did a cartoon once. She's the artist of you know, firefighters standing and looking at a burning building, and they're holding a piece of paper, and the one guy's like, wait a minute, stop jumping the solutions!" <laughs> <It's> like, well, <laughs> at some point you've got to grab yeah. the hose, right? Uh, <laughs> so, um, it, yeah. You know, it's, it's kind of an interesting uh, dynamic there.
1: Um, yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. And containment for me is, is almost off that sheet of paper. It's sort of step zero. Yeah. When you've done the containment, you've decided that now you can do practical problem solving. Mm-hmm. You, you've, you've got some part of your organization focused on, Putting out the fire, making sure that there's no other live coals, and then you've got another part of your organization doing the after after incident investigation. You know, I think it's it's a it's a different type of problem solving, and that's yeah. that, I would, you can call that problem response, an emergency response, or containment. You know, I think that's very appropriate to, to just to separate those in your thinking.
0: Yeah, and you know I've heard people use the phrase short-term countermeasure and long-term countermeasure. So I was wondering if you could maybe elaborate on that a little bit or just talk about, you know, the word countermeasure in general right. um, as opposed to saying solution. What, what's
1: implied in all of that? Yeah, I think I think they're really, you know, a short-term countermeasure is containment for me mm-hmm. or just a containment that's a little bit larger than a normal you know, extra inspector at the end of the line, right? I think a countermeasure for me implies you are taking measures to counter a root cause that you've identified Mm -hmm. and it's possible that you go look at the line or look at the process and you immediately see that's a root cause or that's a cause and I'm going to counter it so you can it's not a you know it's not a hard and fast uh, line where you say just never use uh, short-term countermeasure but I like to be a little more black and white and think that generally speaking countermeasures are measures actions you're taking to to protect against the root cause, uh, causing another causing a problem or leading to a problem. Whereas, the, the containment or the immediate short-term action is more. It, it can be it can be at the cause level or it can just be extra you know rework stations, extra checks, extra you know extra padding whatever it takes to make sure that you don't get hurt. So countermeasures. Yeah, I think the, the main main idea behind using that term uh, or favoring countermeasures versus solutions. It's just linguistic. I think people think of solution as being final, right. uh, whereas a countermeasure, it may or may not work. You know, if, you, if you're working on the wrong root cause, or it's not the root cause, or if there's more root causes, or if, if your measure is not effective, you've got to keep trying. Or a solution, it's you know, you've committed to it, it's the solution, you've solved it, you move on. That's sort of the mentality, which you want to get away from. So I think that's in the language of practical problem solving. We want to be make it safe to admit that we may not have a 100% solution to this problem right away, so we're going to have to commit to, we we'll have to contain it and protect ourselves and the customer, and then, then commit to 20%, then get another 30%, and we keep doing this uh, recursively. Otherwise, we lie to ourselves about, yeah, the problem solved, but probably just, you put it, you swept it under the rug, and people, people who know the process know it's still there, and it's going to come back to bite the next, next person who gets involved in it, so, yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah. And I think, you know, people like to jump to solutions. You mentioned that earlier. I see problem statements that say, uh, our problem is the lack of such and such. Like, well, really, mm-hmm. you're you're just stating the inverse of, of your uh, solution. Okay. Um, but then I, I, you, you bring up a good point. People like to think of eliminating the problem. If you're talking back, back mm-hmm. to your example, solving the of problem of homelessness or solving any other sort of societal problem, it sort of implies that we're, are we bringing it down to zero, or um, are, are we making are we are we making a big impact on that problem? I mean, there, there's different terminology. I don't know. There's not an easy word to say, at least in English, or someone help you know help me here. Um, is there a you know, solve? We have a word for that. Eliminate. We want to reduce homelessness. I guess that that could be a phrase, right?
1: Yeah, I think that's where you have to clarify the problem and break it down. I think those first two steps help you do that. You know, I think if you if you ask, so what? You know, if we, we but our problem is that we lack X. Okay, why is that a problem? So you ask the so what question. And say so what? So you know, ten thousand. What is it? Five, six, seven, eight thousand people in Seattle lack a permanent home. So what? Maybe they like being outdoors. Well, no, they don't. But the, so what is? These people are committing crimes, they're making they littering, some of them are families that don't have stable homes, so their kids are not performing in school. Some of them are getting getting robbed or injured, they're dying on the street. Those are real problems. Those are real problems. And you can then break it down and say, well, the real problem is that we have this this misery condition in our city and we don't like it. Or businesses are, are not getting foot traffic because there are lots of people begging. Okay, that's a problem from a business point of view. So you have to define your customer. Is it the homeless people? Is it the business community? Is it the city as a whole, the international image? Is it my next election campaign as a mayor? You know, and Define that and identify the gap and then get to a clear statement and then break it down into different elements. But we don't do that. We look at a big, big problem and then go solution and waste a lot of money and time on it. I think that's, that's the thinking is that uh, you can call it a solution as long as you follow the – as long as you take action on the, let's say, the – the three three areas you know as long as you're addressing the right issue or problem coming at it from a root cause analysis or cause investigation point of view and taking measures I don't care if you call them solutions but generally speaking it's getting away from that traditional mindset I think that's why we avoid that word yeah um, let's jump
0: back a little bit and, and talk about root causes I mean I think this is an area where there's a lot of interest a lot of discussion uh, within the lean startup community. I don't know how many people are, are watching who have an interest in lean startup. There's a big focus on the five whys. Um, I've heard mm-hmm. sometimes people say, and if I, Eric Reese, the, the author of the lean startup doesn't say this, but I've heard others say and write, well, you know, all you need to do is ask why five times. Um, mm-hmm. I'm curious your reaction to a statement like that and how you would explain root cause problem solving in the context of that.
1: Yeah, I think anytime you say all you need is anything, you know, it's it's not a, the most educated and experienced statement. It's uh it's a statement of enthusiasm, but it's a it's a bad hypothesis. It's not a very good guess that you need more than you need more than just one thing in, in any in any system, right? Whether it's a human body or a universe or relationships or problem solving. So and just in general I'd say anytime you hear that, you know, take it with a huge grain of salt. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, root cause analysis. I think that, that going back onto the, the the root cause analysis or the five why, I'll call it the five why, because I don't think in in uh, the lean startup they really uh, address root cause analysis. They take some ideas from ono and say, oh here's the five why and it's great. Mm-hmm. Come up with five different ways to tackle the problem. Well, that's really not root cause right. uh, analysis. It's you're not looking for five different things. You're not keeping your options open and testing. Different things. That, that's a good idea. To experiment with multiple countermeasures, great. Please do that. We do that after you've you've drilled down. And you know, if you look underneath a tree, you have the trunk, and then you have a, a tap root, and you have various other root systems going up. And that's what, at some level of complexity, a root cause analysis looks like in action. Is that you go down one one path, and it splits, and you have to decide which one to go down. If that's a dead end, you come back to the breaking point, and you go down the other one. And even if it isn't a dead end. You have to come back and explore this one because there can be more than one root cause that are causing a phenomenon somewhere up the chain. So it's not a well that you go down and get some water and pull the bucket back up up the well. It's more like an ant's nest where you go down into the hole and then it starts to go into a, into a maze-like uh, structure. So I think that's one way to think about it is that it's, it's an exploration, root cause is an exploration.
0: And, and I think it's kind of rare circumstances where, you know, you sort of have this magical linear uh, discovery. You know, Taiichi Ono, you know, shared and wrote examples. Um, you, you see people ex- publish examples where like, you get down to that fifth, you, you drill down, you ask why that fifth time. And, oh, there's the the really surprising counterintuitive thing that we wouldn't have got to. Um, I think more often than not, what you're describing, there are multiple routes, um, Multiple right. things to explore. There's, I think, very rarely, at least in complex systems. You know, people in healthcare talk about this a lot. There is no one single root cause to why patients are waiting in the emergency department, usually, and there's certainly no one magical root cause of homelessness. So, you know, how, how have you tried to help people see, you know, kind of, uh, you know, how, yeah. how that thought process
1: works? Yeah, that's a good question. I think it goes back to, again, go slow to go fast if you take the time to clarify your problem statement and break it down properly, the root cause analysis is so much easier because you're taking a complex system and breaking it into its component sub-processes or you're taking the problem of, of waiting. You know? So who's waiting and how long are they waiting? And Are the people that are waiting sick? Are they waiting in the ED? Are they waiting in administration to be you know, to be signed in? And all those things, all waiting is not equal. All, all parts of a big complex problem are not equal. So when you do the breakdown, you identify the ones that are the most urgent and go drill down into those. And sometimes you do get to five the to, to why in five questions in a linear fashion because you're looking at a pretty small part of it. Mm-hmm. If you try to look at the whole thing, that's when you have one trunk of the tree and then you haven't broken down the problem, so your, your, your roots start to split out and it's, you know, it's quite, uh, quite noisy, quite confusing. Mm-hmm. So I think that's, that really helps a lot if, is, to, is to break down the, the issue as much as you can into something it's observable. That's it's small. Something that uh, it's understandable in terms of a cause and effect chain. I think that's another thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and another thing that, and I go back to I go back to Deming whenever I have a, mm-hmm. a, a questions about problem solving, and I'm always amazed at his how far ahead of time his time he was and his insights into everything. And I think the if you do a little bit of light reading on the system of profound knowledge and Ask yourself, you know, which of those four areas, four elements, let's say, you know, understanding of variation, uh, human psychology, you know, epistemology slash theory of human knowledge or appreciation of a system. You know, which of those four you you're not really respecting in your problem solving, in your root cause analysis in particular, then that goes a long way. You know, you could be chasing the wrong. Avenue of pursuit because you just haven't, you know, you're, you're, it's because of cognitive biases, you know, that, that trip you up psychologically speaking. You're guessing wrong because of your, because that's how humans are wired. You see patterns when they're not there, for example. So I think it's it's really tough for people to, you know, to uh, become objective in in that. But if you remember that these are least these are at least four big failure modes of of, of management, mm-hmm. and if recall analysis you know and the system of profound knowledge gives you those four big themes and you can say which of these you know are we, you know we got statistics great no we got great people for that we understand it we don't have any issue with that human psychology is it that are we are we guessing wrong because of our understanding of, of how we look at things is it a, we don't understand the system I think that's a good fruitful place to begin uh, questioning if people are struggling with recall analysis
0: yeah Um, Let's see. Oh, the uh, webcams are back. They they jumped out momentarily. Um, we've got a few questions that have come in from the audience. I would invite people. Um, go ahead and submit a few more questions. Um, maybe the last question I'll ask before we, we move into that is to talk a little bit about um, step eight. You know, we, we've sort of touched on these steps in maybe you know, an appropriately non-linear way. Um seeing countermeasures through a a, a checking process and results. Talk about uh, step eight, what you mean, you know, these different S's and the balance between sharing ideas or, you know, uh, sharing ideas versus asking others to do problem solving on their own is a a question we get um, uh, asked of us a lot. What what are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, step eight, again, uh, I think these should be thought of more as stages because within step eight, let's say, or so-called step eight, there are multiple things, multiple steps that ought to be done in order to get back to the next top of the cycle, back to step one. Uh, in order to sustain, you need to have a standard that you can check and audit. So first of all, you, you, re, you re-document or update the standard, whatever that was. And, you know, ideally, you, you started from a standard that was either missing or inadequate or broken or not met, and you've closed part of that gap, and you have a new process, new method, new checklist, and that's your standard. And then you have at another level checking that standard or auditing that standard, putting it into a, in lean terms, it can be daily management system, leader standard work, all these kinds of things where you're doing a process audit. So I think establishing that becomes part of the responsibility of the problem-solving team or the people sponsoring the problem-solving team to make sure that it isn't, uh, you know, sort of set it and forget it. You set it and then you keep checking to make sure because you may find that you did everything right to this point, but something else comes up. To make it so that you have to try some some new action, new 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 failure mode comes up that was invisible during the problem solving uh, activity. Yeah, and only you can because you you have a limited number amount of data or seasons change, and therefore process behavior, customer behavior change, so it's important. Uh, and sharing that's the, the Japanese for that is yoko Tenkai or yokoten. People talk about yokoten sometimes as at the end of a a three or end of a kaizen event, and that's just really making it a process, making part of the process to to um, take the, the uh, good outcomes and poor outcomes. You know, the good outcomes are whatever solutions or effective countermeasures you found and, and sharing those and saying, if you have similar problems, similar root causes, try these because they might work for you. Not saying copy and paste, mm-hmm. but saying here's our thought process, here's, here's our A3, here's our lessons learned. Or if you're starting up a similar A3, here's where we failed, here's where we tripped up. So you might want to, update your standards around problem solving to check for this or check for that mm-hmm. in, because you're, you're in the same organization or you're in a similar environment and here's our failure mode that we discovered that we didn't know about and so you can benefit from that. I think that's where the sharing part comes in. Start again just means don't close it and then move on. If you've 100% completed the, uh, the gap closure, let's say, then you, you have the process back to where you wanted it if it was not achieving the standard, if it was an achievement where you wanted to improve the performance and you've gotten to a higher level, then you should think, yeah, I, I improved by 20% or reduced the cost or improved safety by a certain amount, but I could still do better. You know, there are still people getting hurt, so we can have even fewer people. So what's the next challenge? And I think that's the, that's the part is that it doesn't mean you have to personally do it, but it means here's what I give to the next generation. Here's what I leave for the next uh, team or person or, or young manager, young supervisor who wants to learn from this. Uh-huh. But here's where you can start and continue from more and continue the legacy, so to speak. Uh-huh. I think that's where the start again comes in. It's just part of the PDCA cycle, but it has to be there as, if not the last thing you do, definitely the last thing that you check that is has been done in in that eighth stage. Okay.
0: Well, great. Well, well, thanks, John. And before we jump into uh, questions from from the audience, uh, again, I would invite you to go visit. Um, the URL that you see on screen there um, to learn more, of John's Deeper Dive, the podcast on practical problem solving. We'd also invite you to check out our webinar library where this webinar and um, others um, will, will be or are archived. Go to kinexus.com slash webinars. Click on that button that you see there. Uh, we have a blog at blog.kinexus.com with something on there almost every day. So we'd invite you um, to check that out. And then our next webinar will be uh, myself and Dr. Greg Jacobson. He's, a, of course, co-founder and CEO of Kinexus. We're going to be talking about a topic. This is another question we get a lot. Um, it's, it's a bit of a, uh, it's a loaded question. There's an interesting phrase in the question. How do we get buy-in for improvement? Kind of begs the question. Well, uh, if it seems like people are not excited about improvement, why is that? I, I think my first thought would be don't blame those people that you think aren't interested. It's, it's a far more complex uh, situation than that, but we'll, uh, we'll contact you about this. Go to kinexus.com slash webinars again um, to sign up for that, and I hope you'll join us. So we've got a number of questions here, John. Um, let me start with, or um, well, at least it's a short question. Maybe I don't know if it's a simple one from Shirin. Uh, is it important or necessary to translate problem-solving savings into dollars?
1: Oh, yeah, good question. I was talking to somebody about that this morning, actually. Um uh, I would say that for an organization like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, who have billions in a, in a fund and their goal is to spend all that money to to improve education and, and food availability and eradicate diseases, then no, it's not that important. I think for them, the goal is they're not a business, their goal is not to to show how much more money they're making by improving. Their goal is to show how we're using money to improve the lives of people in the world. So whatever your purpose is, you know, if, if your purpose is to win football games, then you know, the money you spend in the front office may not be the issue because it's about if you're having extra staff in the front office. If it doesn't break the league rules and that gets you, you know, better intel or gets you, you know, get right out to the front line and to the guys in time, do it. Do it. You know, it's not the, not, not the point. Too often in in business, well, we shouldn't say too often, but often in business, business exists to perpetuate itself, and part of the way it does that is to fund itself through money that is left over from what the customer pays you to what what the costs are. So in order to be able to do uh, a non, let's say, customer delivery activity like problem solving, a support activity, you have to show that it has some positive impact on the organization, directly or indirectly. The short answer really is it's not always possible to show concrete savings. So you should always aim for some kind of a quantitative or or measurable and some kind of a qualitative uh, target or commitment if possible. But it should be clear that by doing this, this is somewhere in the causal chain that if we do this and a few other things, then we make money. So you can say, well, I'm saving all this space in my factory or warehouse or whatever, but you can't sell it, you can't rent it out, you can't really show savings right now. But combined with increase a Kaizen event or a A3 activity to increase sales, or to do other things, bring in new business, we can use that space and then we make money. So I think that that at a minimum has to be it has to fit the overall purpose of the organization, which can be to improve lives, it can be to provide more care to more indigenous people in the organization or in the in the community in the hospital, let's say, by saving money by expanding care, or it can be just simply to make more money for shareholders if that's what during the purpose of doing
0: mm-hmm. Okay, thanks. Uh, we've got another question here from Tony. What would you advise for people whose work has super slow feedback cycles? Uh, I work in a basic pharma drug discovery and I find it very difficult to convey the needs for the type of thinking exemplified by Kynexis and Gemba Academy. Your thoughts?
1: Pharmaceuticals, yeah, long long feedback cycles. So I would say as, as much as possible, look for processes. So I guess there's two things. There's process improvement and there's results improvement. And mm-hmm. and in, in, this, in the eighth step or eighth stage, it's check process and results. I think that's part of the thinking is we're not just looking for good results. We're looking to see that we understand why we're getting good results or poor results. So you do something, and months later, out comes the result. How can you be checking the process during that time to make sure that what's in the pipeline literally or figuratively is good quality so it's not just some sort of magic happening somewhere in there but we don't understand it so we can't duplicate it we just got lucky we added these things together and cooked it for a while and then we came up with a pill as much as possible break it down to the how did we get there and find out where are those in-process checkpoints where you can get feedback sooner. It's, it's simply a question of break the process down to, to where you can go see and go gain the feedback sooner. And if the organization doesn't see value in that, it's sort of a, it's, that's sort of the topic of the next webinar. How do you get people to see that? But mm-hmm. I think that's it – is, it is a real challenge. You know, software development is a similar way and a little bit – it's a little bit different than, than, than pharmaceuticals, but it's the same kind of thing. It's code a little bit, release it, try it out, see how it works, and get people back together and do a little bit more on it rather than – build the whole thing out and then launch it and then see if it succeeds or fails yep. don't know how that works with pills you put in people's bodies but I think that's also just breaking it down I think that's that's the first step is how can you break it down I don't have the answer to that because I'm not a pharma specialist but that's mm-hmm. the that's the line of thinking okay thanks
0: now uh, here's a question from Brent uh, when analyzing root causes and developing countermeasures can you touch on the problem of lack of education showing up as a root cause and or re-education as a countermeasure, um, how to avoid that or coach people to true root causes or countermeasures.
1: Yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting one. You know, lack of training, lack of education, that comes up often. It's sort of the try harder countermeasure, right, in mm-hmm. a sense. I think there's one part of that I think is that the countermeasure has to be an actionable countermeasure The output of a good root cause analysis is not necessarily the true root cause, but an actionable root cause. So whatever level of influence and authority and budget your problem-solving team has, the root cause that you find from that has to be actionable to you. So at one level, if you have the ability to train those people or educate those people or remove whatever ignorance or bias they have, great. If that's beyond your ability or, or budget or time frame, then you have to go find a different... Uh, root cause that has something addressable to it, or if you dig deeper and say, you know, it's not the people that uh, aren't being trained, that's not the problem, they're doing their best to learn up, uh, study up and learn on this, it's the management that fundamentally doesn't believe that people need to be educated, well, that's a management root cause, it's a Mm -hmm. deep philosophical issue, but that's not addressable to you, you can't fire your management, so you have to get to an addressable root cause, and sometimes it's discouraging, because the true root cause is the owners, it's the boss. Mm -hmm but that isn't an addressable root cause that's not a practical problem solving approach that's like saying well I know I know what the solution is but you know you don't have the you know you can't shoot the boss that, then you're calling for revolution at that point then you're saying you know we'll, we'll turn the system upside down and that's that is one way of getting things done but it's not practical problem solving
0: yeah yeah, yeah it, it, i hear that a lot in healthcare um People I know complain that, you know, uh, they say, you know, lack, lack of training, re-educate, lack of training, re-educate. Nobody ever steps back and asks, why is the training apparently poor to begin with? Which, like you said, that that's a more systemic root cause. Dr. Deming would say senior leadership has more responsibility for, for things like that, right?
1: Yeah, and I think if that is, if you believe that to be true or if leadership believes that to be true, then you have to set up a hypothesis and say, okay, Let's create a situation where we do what we think is adequate training, and let's see if the results differ. Mm-hmm. If they don't differ, then you have to abandon that hypothesis and say it wasn't training. Because we did the training again, we emphasized all the points, and yet still we have this problem. Therefore, this cannot be the correct hypothesis. It cannot be the correct root cause, because we put a countermeasure against it. We kept that from being possible. Everybody passed the test. Everybody knew knew what the answers were, and yet we still have the same problem occurring, so therefore there must be a different root cause. I think that's, it's, that's you just have to you know, try it out, yeah. practice it.
0: Okay, uh, last question. I'll, I'll combine. There were two very similar questions here. Uh, one, one person asked, my organization uses an A3 template that flips steps three and four, root cause, and then set a target condition. Do you think it matters? And Kim asked, do you think committing to a target could be placed after developing countermeasures? We've, we've touched on that a little bit, but... Um, you know, yeah. I guess the ultimate question is, does it matter? What are your thoughts?
1: Yeah, and I wouldn't question Toyota on too many things in the way that they do things because they've had a lot of practice at this 50, 60 years. So I would say if it's between, you, know, you have to wait. You know, is my team smarter than Toyota at this? You have to decide. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say the logic that I see in putting set a target or commit to a target before root cause analysis is that you're sort of taking the fear off the table by saying, well, we know what we're, gonna, we're, we're committing to. We're committing to 10%, 10% of the 50 So as we do our root cause analysis, we're not trying to solve the whole problem. We're looking for enough to get us some countermeasures we can put in the plan and test it out. And keep in mind, if you're not doing this in a sort of a fear, like a low fear environment, a blame-free environment, you're not going to succeed anyway. So if you fail at the 10%, then you go, okay, why did we fail to get? We only got 7%. Why? Long root cause, mm-hmm. weak countermeasures. Let's go back to step one. So it's completely safe to to put commit at that first at that at step three because you're committing and then you're doing the hard work of finding the root causes because you're going to come back to it again and again. And that's that's a key part of it. If you put it after root cause analysis, I think what you're doing is hedging that. Well, we'll commit once we know we can do this. Mm-hmm. Or after countermeasures are developed, and that doesn't make a lot of sense to me because then you're sort of saying, well, okay, our plan, and with this plan we can do X. As long as your problem-solving process is, is iterative, I, I would say that it almost doesn't matter, but something about putting the commitment later makes it feel like you're giving a chance to back out yeah. of that commitment. I think that commitment has to... Be up front, just to say, you know what, we're going to do this, mm-hmm. we're going to work hard. It's like saying, we're going to win. If you say in the fourth quarter of a football game, yeah, we're ahead, we're going to win, mm. but that's not how you play a game. You play intending to win from the, snap, the first snap, and you have to adjust, adjust, adjust continually, and you might lose the game, but then you come back next week. Yeah. As long as you end with a, a winning season or a championship or whatever, continuously improving, you're, you're better. Nobody yeah. gets shot at the end of, a, end of a game. I think that's the, yeah. that's the idea.
0: Yeah, and I think you raise a good point. Setting a target after we've developed the countermeasure, that, that's sort of saying, well, here's what we can accomplish. And as opposed to, I've, I've heard uh, to people recently and even back in some of the older books talking about what do you need to improve, which is uh, a different question. What, we, what, uh, what gap do we need to close or how much do we need to close it? Let's use that to challenge ourselves, right?
1: Yeah, and think about it. If you commit to commit to whatever percentage of closure of the gap after thinking of the countermeasures, what are you going to do next time? Mm-hmm. You know, if, you, if that gets you to 100%, great. But if that only gets you to 30% and you've already looked at all the root causes because you didn't narrow it down at commit, you said, here's my whole set of, here's my broken down problem, here's my set of possible root causes, here's my countermeasures, I've committed, and, okay, I can do 30. But then you've got to come back to it again and recommit to the other 70 somehow. So it's better to say, here's 20%, we've got to work hard to get there, and then come back to the next chunk and the next chunk. That's at least how I would. Yeah. Yeah. You know, in terms of goal attainment, you set a goal and you work hard towards it. You don't work hard and say, okay, how far did we manage to climb today? Well, then that was our target. No, it's yeah. not, not exactly. Yeah. Okay.
0: Well, well, John, thank you. Thanks, everyone, for hanging over an extra uh, minute or two. Again, John Miller from Gemba Academy. You see his contact information there. You can also go to gembaacademy.com. And if you haven't already, maybe go check out our website, kinexus.com. Uh, John, thank you so much. Thank you to everybody who uh, took time out to attend today or watch the recording. Um, Thanks a lot.
1: Welcome. Have a good day.